Chapter Four of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simsville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter Four. Johnson's Retreat from Harper's Ferry The first great military blunder of the war was committed by Johnston in evacuating Harper's Ferry. Both Jackson and General Lee, who was then in Richmond organizing the army and acting as military adviser, were opposed to this. They wanted to hold it, not as a fortress with a garrison, but to break communication with the West, and a salient for an active force to threaten the flank of an invading army. On April 27th, Stonewall Jackson was ordered to the command of Harper's Ferry, which the militia had seized a few days before. Harper's Ferry is situated in a gap in the Blue Ridge through which flow the waters of the Potomac and the Shenandoah. John Brown had seized the place in his rebellion. The fact that he tried to start a slave insurrection in a region where there were few slaves is proof that he was a monomaniac but Harper's Ferry was a place of great strategic value for the Confederates, as the railroad and canal on the Potomac from Washington, fifty miles below, passed through the gap. It was a salient position. Its possession by the Confederates was a menace to the north, and broke direct communication between the capital and the west. A strategic offensive on the border was the best policy to encourage southern sentiment in Maryland, and defend the Shenandoah Valley from invasion. A Virginian lieutenant, Roger Jones, had been stationed at Harper's Ferry with a small guard to protect the property of the government. He remained there until the force coming to capture the place was in sight, then set fire to the buildings and retreated. His example in holding the position to the last extremity was not followed by the Confederates. When Jackson arrived at the scene of his command, without waiting for instructions, he prepared to hold it by fortifying Maryland Heights. I am of the opinion, he wrote to General Lee, that this place should be defended with a spirit that actuated the defenders of Thermopylae, and if left to myself such is my determination. General Lee was in accord with Jackson's sentiments. Now Jackson did not mean that Harper's Ferry should be held as a fortress to stand a siege, nor that he would stay there and die like the Spartans in the pass but that he would hold it until a likelihood of its being surrounded by superior numbers was imminent. There was no prospect of this being the case, for no investing force was near. The best way to defend the Shenandoah Valley was to hold the line of the Potomac as a menace to Washington. Major Dias, who had been sent to Harper's Ferry as an inspector of the Confederate War Department, thought that the troops showed an invincible spirit of resistance. On May 21st he wrote, I have not asked Colonel Jackson his opinion on the subject, but my own is that there is force enough here to hold the place against any attack which, under the existing state of affairs, may be contemplated. And on May 23rd, the day before McDowell's army at Washington crossed into Virginia, he reported that there were about 8,000 troops at Harper's Ferry and the outposts, including five companies of artillery and a naval battery and that 7,300 were then able to go into battle well-armed. The naval batteries, he said, under Lieutenant Fauntleroy, 
are placed on the northern and southern salients of the village of Harper's Ferry, and enveloped by their fire the whole of the town of Bolivar, and the approaches of the immediate banks of the Potomac and Shenandoah rivers. The cavalry under Lieutenant Colonel Jeb Stuart is in very good condition and quite effective. All the infantry regiments are daily drilled in the school of the soldier and company, and valuable assistance is received in this respect from the young men who have been instructed at the military school at Lexington. Neither Jackson nor Major Diaz knew of any immediate danger of Harper's Ferry being invested. On May 24th, in accordance with orders from the Confederate government at Montgomery, General Joseph E. Johnston assumed command at the ferry, and in a few days Jackson was given a brigade of five Virginia regiments. The outposts at the ferry then extended from Williamsport on the Potomac to Point of Rocks on the river below. Johnston at once submitted a memorandum to Richmond on the conditions at Harper's Ferry, which displayed the caution for which he became distinguished. He seemed to have little confidence in his troops, and thought the position could be easily turned from above or below, taking no account of the fact that he might turn the flank of an enemy who was flanking him. Johnston asked instructions from General Lee in relation to the manner in which the troops he commanded should be used, and on May 28th he again wrote in the same tone of despair, "'If the Commander-in-Chief has precise instructions to give, I beg to receive them early.' I have prepared means of transportation for a march. Should it be decided that the troops should constitute a garrison, this expense can be recalled. Which shows that he was getting ready for a retreat. With this letter Johnston enclosed a memorandum from a staff officer, Major Whiting, in which the latter spoke of troops that were gathering at Carlisle and Chambersburg, intimating that in the event of the advance of this force it might be necessary to move out to prevent being shut up in a cul-de-sac. But such a thing was too remote and contingent to constitute a danger of investment at that time. No place is absolutely impregnable. Gibraltar has been captured. The answer Johnston should have received to this request for orders was that he did not command a garrison to defend a fortress, but an active force in the field, and that Harper's Ferry might be held as a picket-post. The discipline of Johnston's troops ought to have been as good as that of the three months' men that Patterson was collecting at Chambersburg, fifty miles away. In addition to the cadets of the Virginia Military Institute, who were drilling his regiments, Johnston had in his army at least ten officers who had lately resigned from the U.S. Army. Nearly all the field officers of Jackson's brigade had been educated at the Military Institute, and several had been officers in the Mexican War. Their conduct in battle a few weeks afterwards shows how much Johnston had underrated them. The men were volunteers full of enthusiasm for a cause, and rendered cheerful obedience to orders. It was not necessary to drill such material into machines to make them soldiers. Johnston complained of the want of discipline of his army, and the danger of being surrounded by a superior force. The force that was coming to surround the ferry was a spectre. McDowell's and Patterson's armies were fifty miles away and a hundred miles apart. At the request of Governor Pierpont, a few regiments had crossed the Ohio, but McClellan's headquarters were still at Cincinnati. Any movement from that direction would naturally be through central Virginia, towards Richmond, in cooperation with McDowell. 
Johnston continued to show great anxiety about his position, and wrote about it several times to General Lee. But neither Lee nor President Davis could see the danger as he saw it, and on June 7 General Lee, to calm his fears, wrote him, He, the President, does not think it probable that there will be an immediate attack by troops from Ohio. General N. J. Garnett, C.S. Army, with a command of 4,000 men, has been dispatched to Beverly to arrest the progress of troops. Colonel MacDonald has also been sent to interrupt the passage of troops over the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. It is hoped by these means you will be relieved from an attack in that direction, and will have merely to meet an attack in front from Pennsylvania. In the meantime, reinforcements were going to Beauregard and Johnston almost daily. Wise and Floyd had been sent into the Kanawha Valley to counteract any movement there, and Garnett, with four thousand troops, had been sent to northwest Virginia. Patterson's was the only force from which Johnston could expect an attack, and as he would have had to make detachments from it to guard his communications, Patterson could not be much superior in numbers when the collision should come. General Lee, as adviser to the War Department, was really the de facto Secretary of War, and directed all operations in the field. He had selected Manassas Junction as a strategic point for the concentration of troops, on account of its being in connection with the valley. On return from Manassas Junction, to relieve Johnson of anxiety about his flank being turned, Lee wrote to him that he had placed Colonel Ewell in advance at Fairfax Courthouse, and Colonel Eppa Hunton at Leeburg on the Potomac, each with a force of infantry and cavalry in reservation, who would inform him of any movement to his rear. But Johnston continued uneasy, and although he was receiving reinforcements, he again wrote that he had heard that Patterson had ten thousand troops at Chambersburg, that some of McClellan's troops had reached Grafton, and he apprehended a junction of all those forces against him. He should at least have waited for the development of such a plan, and then, instead of retreating, have taken the offensive to defeat it. Johnston's suggestion meant the abandonment of the valley. Patterson, who was organizing the force at Chambersburg, was a political general, only remembered for having allowed the force he commanded in the Shenandoah Valley to render no service at a critical time. Patterson proposed to capture Harper's Ferry, which, of course, General Scott was very willing to do. But the only support Scott could promise from Washington was to make a demonstration towards Manassas, to prevent reinforcements going to the valley, and to send a force of twenty-five hundred on a secondary expedition up the Potomac. As the ferry was of great strategic value as an outpost, Scott warned Patterson of the desperate resistance he might expect from the Confederates. He did not suspect that the Confederates were then packing up to leave. On June 14, the Confederates began the evacuation of Harper's Ferry, and retreated ten or twelve miles to Charlestown. No movement had been made against them from any direction. Several regiments had just arrived, there were about three thousand militia at Winchester, and a force of the enemy had retreated from Romney. On June 13, after repeated requests for instructions about holding Harper's Ferry, which showed clearly a desire to shift the responsibility for it, the War Department wrote him the conditions on which the place should be evacuated. 
you have been heretofore instructed to use your own discretion as to retiring from your position at Harper's Ferry, and taking the field to check the advance of the enemy. As you seem to desire, however, that the responsibility of your retirement should be assumed here, and as no reluctance is felt to bear any burden which the public interest may require, you can consider yourself authorized, whenever the position of the enemy shall convince you that he is about to turn your position, and thus deprive the country of the services of yourself and the troops under your command, to destroy everything at Harper's Ferry. Johnston seems to have met this letter at Charlestown while it was on the way, and did not wait for it at the ferry. Johnston's report says he met a courier from Richmond with a dispatch authorizing him to evacuate Harper's Ferry at his discretion. The dispatch he received had no such instructions. The conditions on which he was authorized to abandon the place had not arisen. No enemy was threatening to turn his position. On June 15, Patterson crossed the Maryland line. His leading brigade was commanded by Colonel George H. Thomas, a Virginian, who was an officer in the Second Cavalry under Lee. It had been expected that he would go with the people of his native state. On the 16th his brigade waded the Potomac. When Patterson heard that Harper's Ferry had been abandoned, he was incredulous, and thought it was a ruse, giving Joe Johnson a credit he himself never claimed. The evacuation of Harper's Ferry before it was compelled by the presence of an enemy was not approved at Richmond nor was it done to set in concert with any other force, as was then supposed. The victory at Bull Run a few weeks afterwards confirmed the impression that the movement had been made in cooperation with Beauregard. The latter knew nothing of such a purpose until he heard that the Confederates had lost their advantage, and that the enemy held the key to the Shenandoah Valley. In plain words, it was a retreat. The evacuation of the post before there was any pressure to compel it made Johnston the innocent cause of a comedy at Washington. General Scott could not comprehend what could be the motive for it, except on the theory of its being a feigned retreat to capture Washington by a stratagem. No other reason could be conceived why the Confederates should surrender, without making a defense, the advantage of Harper's Ferry as a base. After a part of his force had crossed the Potomac, to his surprise, Patterson received a telegram from General Scott on June 16, ordering him to send at once to Washington all the regular troops, horse and foot, and Burnside's Rhode Island Regiment. And on the 17th of June, Scott repeated the order, and said, We are pressed here. Send the troops I have twice called for, without delay. Where the pressure could come from was a mystery to Patterson, as he knew that Johnston was still in the Shenandoah Valley, but the order was imperative, and he obeyed. The troops were sent, he said, leaving me without a single piece of artillery, and for the time with but one troop of cavalry, which had not been in service over a month. So the hostile armies retreated in opposite directions. Patterson recrossed the Potomac and Johnston, unconscious of the alarm which his retreat had given in Washington, went on to Winchester. There was another amusing episode on June 16, as a result of the Harper's Ferry operations. In anticipation of the demonstration he was to make in favor of Patterson's predicted attack on Harper's Ferry, 
McDowell had sent General Schenck on the Loudon Railroad as an advance guard. When turning a curve near Vienna, a fire was opened on the train by what Schenck called a masked battery. The engine was in the rear, and as the engineer could not draw the train out of the range of fire, he detached the engine and disappeared under a full head of steam. So Schenck and his men had to walk back. Under a flag of truce, he asked permission to bury the dead and take care of the wounded. Schenck afterwards gained notoriety as U.S. Minister at London and was recalled. The only distinction he won in the war was as the inventor of the term masked battery. The battery that did so much damage was commanded by my schoolmate, Del Kemper. The whole country was greatly surprised by the news of the evacuation of Harper's Ferry. If Johnson had waited a day longer for the answer to his request for instructions, his retreat would have been a disobedience of orders. The conditions did not exist, in the opinion of the War Department, which would justify the evacuation. Johnson sent a reply in which he disclaimed a desire to shift responsibility, which was clearly inconsistent with his request for instructions. Harper's Ferry should have been held until danger was imminent. It must have been a position of a strategic value, as well as of tactical strength, since it was held by eleven thousand men against the Confederates, and used as a base in the Gettysburg campaign, and also when early invaded Maryland. When the ferry was evacuated, McDowell's army was fifty miles below, defending Washington, and Beauregard, in his front, fully occupied his attention. Patterson was at Hagerstown, had not crossed the Potomac, and had given no sign of doing so. End of chapter.